Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome along to the Slacktivist Action Group. Theresa May has tried to reboot the country, herself and the party by making a speech at conference when the letters fell down behind her. I don't know if you saw the slogan, a country that works for everyone. And then the F fell down, didn't it? So that it read, a country that works or everyone. (laughs) Either everyone can work or the country can work but not both at the same time. And then the E fell off, didn't it? And then if you were watching at home, you were looking at the Owen country and thinking, please, please be next. (laughs) And what was her major policy announcement? Her major policy announcement was she wanted to steal Labour's idea on the price energy cap. Because, of course, privatisation of energy has not worked, is it? Two-thirds of us pay more than what we need to pay. Half of us have never switched in our lives. Because switching is a pain in the arse, isn't it? There's loads of switch sites now. You switch, simply switch, 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 Nintendo switch. (laughs) You almost need a comparison site, don't you, to compare different switching sites before you work out which one to go for. And only two of the big six are British. We've got British Gas and SSE. Then we've got Electricity de France, EDF. We've got NPower, German. E.ON UK, German, Scottish Power, Spanish. (laughs) How does that work? You'd be pretty disappointed if you were buying some Spanish ham, wouldn't you? And find out it comes from Kilmarnock. (laughs) And then we've got loads of little small energy companies now, which you could go to, couldn't you? But they've all got wacky names, haven't they? Like Oink or Octopus, which don't really inspire you with confidence. Bulb, that's one of them. You're thinking, I'm going to need more power than that. Robin Hood Energy, that's another one. You're thinking, where are they getting their energy from? Are they nicking it from the rich people up the road? And of course, now anybody, anybody can actually put stuff into the national grid. I could wire up my exercise bike to the national grid, Andy's Energy, get my little six-year-old on that exercise bike. You want a fidget spinner? Keep pedalling. <laughs> and so, because it's not working very well, the government have promised, haven't they? By 2020, we are going to have to have all the energy companies sending us a smart meter so as we can check how much we're using and then we can reduce our bills. Trouble is, you get this smart meter from your energy company, don't you? And then you think, all right, OK, plug the smart meter in. I'll turn off a couple of lights, see if that's made any difference. Then I'll maybe go around, turn a couple of things off, stand by, come back, see if that's made any difference. And you think, oh, maybe rather than put the kettle on, I'll get a, a cup of water and I'll put that in the microwave, see if that's made a difference. And then you look at the smart meter and you think, oh, I wonder how much energy that's using. <laughs> And then you turn it off, don't you? And you immediately relax and you put the kettle on and you turn the heating up because it's a fucking relief not to have to look at that smart meter. (laughs) And now we've got Theresa May, haven't we? She is getting the Chinese to build a nuclear power plant in this country. It's scary times, isn't it? Chinese building nuclear power plants. We've got Donald Trump in America and we've got Kim Jong-un in North Korea. I mean, he's mental, isn't he? He's murdered his uncle, he's poisoned his own brother, and he spends a surprisingly large amount of time with his sister. He thinks he's in a Game of Thrones, doesn't he? (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to stage the co-leader of the Green Party, Jonathan Bartley. Would you please also welcome the director of the Good Law Project, Jolly and Morm, and the host of News Jack, Angela Barnes. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. This, this is our Slacktivist Action Group for today. Have a good look at them. Um, we like to start off by hoping to bond with our audience by telling them uh, something that may be in an ideal world that we would be less slack about. Angela, is it, could we start with you that in an ideal world, would you, would you be less slack about? I, I would like to be less slack about finishing things that I start. I'm, a re- I'm so good at starting projects. I never finish them. Like A couple of years ago, I decided to do an A-level in history for fun because I'm cool. And I got to a point... The, the reason, I just gave up in the end because um, I start, there was a module I had to do that was American politics, 1948 to 2001. And I thought, I can't do an A-level in history when it contains events that happened when I was 25. <laughs> That's just too depressing. So I never finished it. But I'm, I'm always starting projects. I started learning Russian about two months ago. Yeah. I didn't even finish the alphabet. <laughs> it is right. tricky, though, to be fair. It's a pretty tricky, like, tricky language. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that sentence, you, you, I thought you were going to go on again, but you couldn't be asked to finish that no, sentence. I can't. Either, could you? No, that's it. I can start things, I can't finish them. Ask my boyfriend. No, that's it. <laughs> Julian, what about you? What would you like to confess to the group? I'm not slack about a great deal, and I think what I'd like to be more slack about is um, life generally. I'm sort of quite wound up by everything that's happening in the world, as um, anyone who uh, ever looks at my Twitter account will be able to tell. So. You know, you have a kind of obligation, don't you, to balance all of the cares on your shoulders with the need to have a good life yourself. You're saying that you'd like to be more slack about stuff, but you're very slack about your Facebook page, which basically (laughs) says, oh, I can't be arsed with this, follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Um, The one thing I do not need in my life is more social media. (laughs) Well, I mean, I suppose if I was offering anything to group, I, I, in terms of social media, I get really annoyed by emojis. I've a very limited tolerance of emojis. People send me texts. You mean, well, you know, just gets on my tits. What the hell is this? What does it mean? It, it, often you can't you can't understand exactly what the if I don't understand what the emoji is, I like to send them out maybe a horse with a cake and a rainbow. You know, <laughs> you, you work that one out then. Go on. What about you, Jonathan? What would you like to? I'd like to be less slack about going to bed. I will not... I hate going to bed. If anyone invites me out to karaoke, that's it. I'm out till four o'clock in the morning. So, uh, and then I have to get up. I'm not a morning person either, so I really regret it. But it seems like such a good idea at the time, every, every night. <laughs> so any Green Party conferences uh, in the morning, you, you, you don't sign up for those? I'll tell you what, it, it happened at the first Green Party conference. I ended up going out for karaoke. It seemed like a really good idea. I think we were in Liverpool or Birmingham. And uh, someone, some of the young greens like, spotted there was a karaoke bar nearby. I said, do you fancy coming out? She said, yeah. And the press team kind of had a hernia, <laughs> had a panic, heart attack. Sh- kind of shoot all the journalists out of the way and kind of bundled me into a car. And we got out and we did karaoke till about two or three in the morning. It was great. Lovely. But, yeah, no one knows that. You've just had your Green Party conference. Nothing fell off the backdrop. You know, you hadn't lost your voice. Nobody handed you a P45. I mean, if you want to show people you're a government in waiting, how can you have a conference go so smoothly? <laughs> it's true. No, we did, we did toy with the idea of getting someone to come up on stage and kind of hand me a kind of membership form <laughs> with a green party from Michael Gove, <laughs> who uh, made some comments at the Tory party conference about saying they were the, the true green party. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great feeling. I was a bit worried, actually, going to the green party conference, feeling that maybe off the back of the election, you know, we really got squeezed. Straight after I went to Glastonbury, and I'd wander around Glastonbury because I was speaking a few times and people would stop me and you're that green guy, aren't you? Yeah. I said, can I have a picture? Yeah, sure. I said, we, we love you. You're, you're brilliant. I said, fantastic. Did you vote for us? Nah, vote for Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> and it happened time and time and time again. And it was a bit dispiriting. You know, even in rock-solid safe seats around the country, there were people still voting for Jeremy Corbyn, you know, although they were voting for their local MP, thinking they were voting for Corbyn. And you know, there was a real... Um, consequence for us because we you know our vote share went down which means there's less money that we get as a party which means we can employ less staff so caroline you know our, our lone mp in parliament has, has had to lose a few staff as a result and, and you've got nobody to get you up in the morning having done some karaoke so. <laughs> more to the point yeah yeah and well i mean one of the things you were discussing at conference was th- this idea that you you'd stood aside um in 22 constituencies for other parties uh, in, in you know 
to, to give them a chance, a better chance of maybe defeating the Conservatives and the idea it was part of a progressive alliance. You were progressive, but in fact, none of the other parties actually stood aside for you at all. It was almost like, oh, yes, uh, thank you very much for starting, standing aside for us. Oh, we're not going to bother to stand aside for you. It, it seemed a little unfair. It, it was really disappointing. We thought it was worth a shot because we've got to change the voting system. We, we have to. You know, that is the route to bring about the change we need. And we felt that someone needs to make the first move, so we did. Um, sadly, Labour Party, Lib Dems didn't reciprocate, and there was a real cost. But th- those parties, those 22 parties that stood aside, if they had not done that, there wouldn't be a hung parliament now. You know, it did make the difference in a handful of seats, which has brought about the hung, about the hung parliament, which means we will hopefully have a softer Brexit if we have a Brexit at all. Uh, it means we ditch the dementia tax. It means that you know there we know reversal of the ban on fox hunting. You know, all the legislative agenda has been totally changed because of what those 22 parties did, and I'm really proud of it. But it, it was a massive cost for us as a party. But you know, you, you don't join the Green Party for political ambition. <laughs> and um, I, I, I got into it to bring about. <laughs> We've got a quote, we've got a quote, ladies and gentlemen. We can all go home now, right? You know, the people, I, I love the party because the people that you meet join it because they genuinely want to change the world, and they are. Um, so a few days ago, on Friday, we got a, a councillor in Sheffield who was taken to court by a Labour council. Uh, she is a councillor on that council. And Sheffield council, a Labour-run council, took her to court and asked for a custodial sentence against her because of her protests against the demolition of 2,000, 3,000 trees in the city. And they said she'd broken an injunction. Uh, the judge threw it out. But you know, there are people like that who were just ordinary people, found something they really believed in, joined the party, stood, became a councillor, are fighting tooth and nail. And it's right up and down the country that they're doing it. And I, I love that. You know, it is something that's really genuine, and that really makes my heart sing. You know? And, and you, you do do things differently because you have co-leaders, yeah. you and Caroline Lucas. Now, I'm guessing that that can lead to its own difficulties. You know, somebody's going, oh, oh uh, you know, Jonathan, will you do this for us? And you're going, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm not able to do this, but I'm sure Caroline will do it for you. And then, you know, somebody phones up, Caroline goes, oh, will you do this? And, you know, then they phone you up and go, oh, uh, Caroline said you'd do it. You know, <laughs> there must be some difficulties working out who does what. Uh, so far, it's worked, like, hand on heart, it's worked really, really well. We did um, a little kind of uh, Myers-Briggs test uh, kind of on our personalities when we kind of did the co-leadership to see where our, kind of where we might have big kind of blanks uh, where we might be in synergy and actually we got remarkably similar which is great but people do try and maybe play us off against each other but so far it hasn't worked which is great the only disagreement we've had about is whether I wear a tie or not and I won <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah but I, I you could be less slack about wearing a tie <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but you know she is someone who you know she she is a hero of mine and to be able to work with her it's like a dream country I absolutely love it but it's working well so when she's in Brighton doing her constituency stuff like on a Friday when it usually happens, that's when the Heathrow expansion uh, announcement broke, and so I was able to go out and do all the media while she does the constituency work. So, you know, all the time, you know, she'll be in... Does it tend to work that she tends to do the morning stuff and you tend to do the (laughs) afternoon stuff? I'll do the karaoke, yeah. Yeah. Believe me, Caroline doing karaoke is not something you want to see. (laughs) Now, your speech, basically, you were saying that you're on the side of the little guy. That was was one of the the sort of the the buzzwords of, of your speech, if you like, or certainly what was picked up on. Now... Everybody seems to be on the side of the little guy at the moment. Donald Trump, he's very keen on the, on the little guy. And obviously, Theresa May, she's now, you know, just about managing. And Jeremy Corbyn's very keen. And you think, all of these people on the side of the little guy, how come the little guy is still the little guy? You know, the little guy must be looking at being the little guy and thinking, well, all these people on my side, maybe they're the problem rather than the solution. <laughs> yeah, I think... It- we're in such unprecedented times, you know. So the old left-right thing, you know, we would always be firmly on the left as a party, but it's about how you define yourself in terms of a dying system, this left-right continuum. And we've got to think in new ways about it. And you've got all these people coming up and saying, you know, I'm on the side of X, Y, Z. Um, and it's all up in the air for grabs. But, you know, what I will say is when you take a detailed look at what's happening, you know, Corbyn seemed very radical, um, and quite rightly, you know, you, a Labour government would be 100 times better than a Tory government, totally. But when you look at actually what he's proposing, he's saying let's increase public spending from 
40% of GDP to 42% of GDP. Now, Angela Merkel in Germany is up at 44% of GDP. It's not, you know, size, it's not mind-blowing. It's just increasing taxes a little bit. There'd still be a deficit, you know, in the, what the NHS needs. There'd still be underfunding for social care. There'd still be arms exported right around the world under a Labour government. We'd still have nuclear weapons. And so I think the Green Party has a really important role in saying the things which other politicians aren't saying and shifting the agenda in the right way. And, you know, we were banging on about austerity and saying it's a lie for seven years before, you know, there was a, a Labour Party came and embraced that. And I'm really proud of that. So we've got this role to shift the agenda in the right direction, and that's, that's where we are. Well, you, you, you were saying uh, on social media that in terms of the wealth tax, you'd been behind that for ages, and now you're getting support from the International Monetary Fund, of, of all places, to, to do that. And we have supposedly the lowest decade of wage growth since the Napoleonic Wars. And it's all very well putting up a slogan, a country that works for everyone, a more accurate slogan, a country that works not quite as well as it did in 1816. <laughs> it is, you know, it, it, what really frustrates me is it doesn't have to be this way. It really does not have to be this way. We have created so much wealth. There's been, you know, our GDP has quadrupled, you know, since 1950, pretty much. There is so much money around. And we are destroying the planet. We know our air is polluted. Just today we had a new report uh, warning about global warming. You know, BP is factoring in a five-degree increase in, in the climate in terms of global warming. Um, that would be absolutely devastating for climate change refugees for us here. You know, there will be no economy. You know, there will be no society if we do not tackle this, this ravaging of the climate, this ravaging of the planet. And we have to be able to do more with less. We have to think radically in new ways. Or we're just on a hiding to nothing. And, and one of the problems is, you know, we work in these five-year election cycles. So no one is taking the long view. No one is saying, asking the big questions about who the economy is for. Uh, and, and it's a tragedy because it means we are sleepwalking to, to disaster. And I, I just tweeted today, I don't want to be sitting you know, and telling my grandchildren you know, when they ask, why, what went wrong? What, why didn't you do what you had to do? Because you never had it so good. There was enough wealth. You could have had a solution. We know what solutions are. It just requires the political will to do it. And, and for me, you know, genuinely, I'm not scoring political points, the Green Party is the only people that are prepared to get up and say that and because we aren't locked into these kind of five-year uh, electoral cycles. And it turns out you and Jolyon know each other. You, you in fact, have uh, fought a court case together. You, uh, it was in Dublin. You were trying to prove, I believe, Jolyon, that Article 50 could be revoked. And uh, you, you've paused that at the moment without it being conclusive. But at the moment, you're trying to take the government to court over these Brexit impact assessments. You want them to, to publish these Brexit impact assessments. And they've said, oh, no, we can't do that because, you know, we, we might affect our negotiations. But the truth is that, obviously, with the EU, 27 other countries, they've got to be transparent. There's no other way they can do it. And they seem to be winning most of the arguments at the moment as to whether it's the timetable or how much money we're going to pay, etc., etc. So surely, if we were more transparent, we might actually start winning these arguments. Tell us a little bit more about it, Jolyon. So um, I've got about four or five bits of litigation going on. The search for the secret Brexit studies um, is the one I think that's most capturing public attention. Um, government's just published earlier on this evening a list of 57 sectors that it says cover 88% of the economy. These are studies that you have paid for with your taxes. Uh, government knows if you are in one of those 88 uh, percentiles how Brexit will affect your life. Um, it knows that because it spent your money finding out and it won't tell you. Its excuse for not telling you is, is this, that somehow the EU, somehow all of those economists um, in the other 27 member states, all of those think tanks, all of those politicians, all of those governments cannot for themselves work out that Brexit will be bad for us. Somehow we have some kind of monopoly of insight on, uh, into the effects of, of Brexit on the UK. That's the excuse that um, people like Steve Davies, the sort of Brexit minister, are advancing for not releasing this stuff. And it, it makes no sense at all. Um, what it really is about, of course, is um, the control of information, the desire... Um, that we, uh, the electorate that is most profoundly affected by this kind of momentous political event in the nation, should be kept in the dark about what it actually means. And that just cannot, that cannot be right, not in a, not in a democracy. Well, Jonathan, your policy of the Green Party is very much to have a, a referendum on, on the final deal. Um, it seems that the, the 27 EU countries 
are more united than the 23 cabinet ministers in, in the UK cabinet. I mean, this idea that Philip Hammond is somehow a, a saboteur just seems totally ridiculous. He's into a hard Brexit, isn't he? He's into leaving the single market, he's into leaving the customs union. If he was a hunt saboteur, he'd be dressed up in his Sunday best, he'd be riding the horse, he'd be chasing after the fox. The only difference would be he'd want to chase after that fox a little bit longer before it got ripped to shreds. That's how much of a saboteur he is. Yeah, I don't... Everyone's, you know, there's a big kind of falsehood that people in politics and the government and the cabinet know what they're doing. They really do have no clue about what they're doing. This is being made up on the back of a, you know, a fag packet. No one expected that referendum result. No one had thought through what it meant. Most of these people don't know what the hell is going on and what to expect in the future. When they go out and do the media interviews, you know, they're being briefed on the lines for that particular eventuality just to get through that interview. But no one has a clue. It is a real leap in the dark. And we know what happened in the referendum. You know, it was a referendum based on lies. We know that it was uh, something that everyone projected their discontent on. You know, there was no prospectus for what Brexit would look like. It was people just said, yeah, this is what I want. And it was giving the establishment a kicking, and we need to hear that. We need to listen to that. But democracy is not about a winner-takes-all scenario. You, you make your decision, and come hell or high water, that's what you go with. You know, you go back and you revisit it. You have an election every two years or every five years to re-elect a government if you think they're doing a bad job. You don't just say, well, we made that decision, that's it, you know, forever. If things look bad, and that's why we need to have these Brexit studies, you go back and look at what the impact is. You know, it's, it's about the welfare of our kids and their kids and the future of the country. And you don't just say, well, we had that decision and come hell or high water, that's what we're going to go with. And you, Angela, you, you went on tour. You went on tour to support Mr Jeremy Corbyn, you, uh, the JC for PM tour, is that right? I, were... No, I don't know where everyone's got this from. I oh. got... <laughs> Maybe I... you started to think about you were going to do it, and then maybe, you couldn't be I asked did, to finish I it. couldn't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is it's widely reported that you were on that tour. Yeah, I don't know where that's... I honestly well, don't I, know where I, that's I, actually, I have never done a stand-up I, for Jeremy Corbyn. I visited the website, JC for PM, and you, your it? name is on there. Cheeky bastards, I need to talk to them. <laughs> You need I, to have I, a word I, with your I'm agents. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it, but uh, I didn't do it. Um, well, what do you make about Labour shilly challenging? I mean, you know, in terms of their Brexit position, they, they seem to be a lot of things to a lot of people in terms of you could see them anything from sort of the Norway solution to John Redwood, depending they, on where you think they might be going at any particular point. Labour are in that difficult position at the moment, aren't they, of trying to appeal to everybody because they've got Labour voters who are hardcore Remain supporters but they have to acknowledge that a lot of their you know loyal Labour supporters in more rural areas are Leave voters and they've got to they've got to try and make this sort of magic eye picture of Brexit where everyone could just see what they want to see. You know, and, and that's why it's vote in the Labour conference, you know, they're refusing to do a vote on what their Brexit policy is because no one wants to come out and say this is our policy. Even Keir Starmer, the Brexit minister, can't come out, you know, he's been handed this difficult job. It's like a game of Jenga for them and all the pieces are covered in shit and they don't, no one wants to touch it, you know, it's um, and you can't really blame because what do you do? If you're, if you're Jeremy Corbyn, who you know, we know Jeremy Corbyn is not a fan of the EU um, and historically seven out, of 10, seven out of ten, that's how much he's not a fan of well, Yeah, exactly, you know, and, and so but a, a large proportion of their their voters are. So what, how on earth can they come up with a policy that pleases everybody? They can't. So I guess what, all they can do is, is you know, have a policy that advocates uh, staying in the single market and a soft Brexit and all of those things, which, you it's know... It's not really a knowable calculus, though, is it? He can't know what will happen if the Labour Party does what the Labour Party knows is in the interests of the country. There's this calculation that by triangulating the interests of Leave voters and remain voters, Labour is more likely to get into power, and that's the point of view that you're putting forward. Um, against that, you have to balance, well, is the enhanced prospect of the Labour Party getting into power, if that calculus is correct, and no one knows whether it is, um, uh, worth um, damning um, the country to what I think every independent international forecaster in the whole world um, thinks will be disastrous for the country. And, and, and you know, for a man who um, came to power in the Labour Party on the back of, you know, an end to triangulation, that feels like a pretty ugly stance to adopt to me. I mean, I understand the internal logic. If you look at it through a purely party political lens, 
I understand how you get to where the Labour Party is. But if the question's a different one, if the question is, is this right? Is this in the interest of the country? You can't really answer that question, um, yes, um, and yes. You, you, you arrive at a profoundly different position. And so those of us who think about Jeremy Corbyn as being a profoundly principled individual, I think really need to wrestle with the reality um, of what he's doing, what he's condemning the country to, along, of course, with the Conservative Party, which does have its hands firmly on the wheel. There's been a lot of talk in the last week or so about this no-deal scenario. We had James Cleverly, the Conservative MP, saying, well, if you were buying a house, uh, imagine trying to uh, say, I won't accept no-deal as, as a solution and see how you get on. But, of course, in that scenario, you could walk away and you'd still have your old house, wouldn't you? Where we don't have our old house, do we? We set fire to our own house to burn down in about two years' time. It'd be like going, oh, seeing a room you quite like the look of and going, well, if the worst comes to the worst, I've still got a burnt house. He's a, he's a one-man rebuttal to the notion of nominative determinism, isn't he, uh, James Cleaver? <laughs> I'm sure that's brilliant, but I, I'm, anyone else get? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to have to look that up when I get home. But, I was I was wondering which way to jump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, let's go back to you, Jonathan. Um, so yeah, I don't know either. I'm, I'm I'm no worried, I, don't, I wasn't going to ask you that. Let's talk karaoke. I'm better on that. Um, no, just in terms of uh, just, just finishing up about your own conference, uh, obviously you're a big fan of free movement. You were suggesting a new bank holiday to celebrate the contribution of migrants. Obviously, one of the things we would do with a bank holiday is some of us would nip abroad for that bank holiday, which obviously be a, be a very fitting tribute to, <laughs> to migrants. And also, the, in terms of the other thing that was, was going on, you're obviously very worried about air pollution. 50,000 people in Britain dying each year from air pollution. Now, you probably noticed that Norman Tebbit waded into this, um, saying that uh, due to air pollution, um, that's the reason we're getting more transgender people. He said, to his knowledge, when he was in, <laughs> in national service, there wasn't any transgender people. But um, I can't imagine it was easy to come out as transgender in 1949 to Norman Tebbit, <laughs> 18 years before it was legal to be gay. I mean, I, you know... <laughs> It would be a surprise. <laughs> it, it would be a surprise, yeah. I, I read that in the mirror as well. I could not believe it. I'm um, Just coming back to the, the migrant, um, I've, I am so passionate about freedom of movement. I'm so passionate about refugees and asylum seekers. One of the first things I did when I became party leader was go out to the jungle camp uh, in Calais. And I, I, it beggars belief that in 21st century Britain, 50 miles from our shore, there is a refugee camp and that we are turning our backs on the children in that refugee camp. I've been back again uh, after the jungle camp was bulldozed uh, to, to Dunkirk, and I met a kid, must be five years old, from Iraq. And he was, there's some volunteers from the UK who've gone over there, teachers, and they're working with this, this kid, and they said, you know, he hasn't talked in, in three or four months since he's arrived here from Iraq. And we started this fireman Sam jigsaw puzzle together and kind of putting in the pieces... Um, and every time he kind of put a piece in, he kind of stuck his finger up like that, and I kind of went like that. And we had this little connection, and it turns out, I think, probably he was on, he, he probably was on the autistic spectrum, probably had Asperger's. And he, he was going to be stuck in that camp for, he'd been there eight months, he'd probably be stuck in there for two, three years, may never get to the UK to meet his relatives because of our government's policy. He's not getting the support he needs from uh, the... You know, they're not trained, that the volunteers are over there to give him the support he needs. And my son you know, is disabled, and I've seen what investment he needed to make progress, and that child is never going to have that opportunity. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jolene, yourself, you are trying to change the way government works. You are currently taking Uber to court, as I understand it. There was that employment tribunal that said they are, in fact, providing a service they do employ taxi drivers and so from this you saying that if they are providing a service they should provide a VAT invoice they should be paying the government VAT so you're now uh, taking them to court to uh, to try and see if that is in fact the law yeah well um before I come on to that can I just add to what Jonathan was saying you know we think in um, our democracy uh, about um asses on green couches in the Palace of Westminster as being the only metric of success. But if you look at how um, UKIP, which has won fewer seats in general elections than Jonathan's party has, has changed um, the course of uh, the UK's history, um, you, you can very clearly see that there are opportunities for different metrics as well. And that should encourage people to support... Uh, the Greens, who... I mean, I deal with politicians of all colours all the time. And the Greens are, um, I think, the only consistently principled party uh, that, I, that I deal with. Um, but, um, you know, if you're thinking about who to vote for, you, you look at the UKIP example and you can see very clearly how um, you don't actually need lots and lots of MPs to change history. The, the Uber case is um, my response, or one of my responses, to the... Um, problem that um, Jonathan was describing earlier of an electorate that's become distrustful of whether the establishment is acting in its interests. I think distrustful um, with reason. Um, So, you know, we look around, we see big US tech companies not paying the tax uh, that we think they ought to pay, not paying the tax that we ourselves pay. uh, And we wonder um, really how it is that they, with all of this power, uh, and this money get a better deal from the government than, than, than we do. I think people are right to be angry about this, and this is something I can talk about with some authority because I'm a, I'm a QC and I specialise in tax, so I actually know what's going on. Um, and, um, you know, there's a startling fact emerged late last week. I got served a witness statement in this case against Uber um, in which Uber said that the government is not um, seeking to recover any tax from it. So there's an employment tribunal case that says, in effect, that Uber ought to be paying 200 million quid in VAT a year. There's a case in the Court of Justice in Luxembourg where uh, an advocate general has said the same thing. Um, I'm a tax silk, I think those cases are right, and I've taken advice from another tax silk. Um, We all think that Uber ought to be paying this money, yet um, HMRC isn't even asking the question Vast sums of money. I, I can't, I genuinely, I, you know, I, I'm perfectly capable of getting on a kind of soapbox when, when the need arises, but th- there's no need here. I genuinely cannot understand how it is that HMRC is not asking, even asking Uber for this money. Unless Uber asks, sorry, unless HMRC asks, um, we lose the ability to claim it because these, these hundreds of millions of pounds become time-barred. So, so if it becomes clear later on um, that Uber does owe this money, because HMRC hasn't asked for it, we will lose the ability to recover And so you're, you're taking, um, taking it to court and you're asking on your website, you're saying that it may run into over a million pounds in costs. And so you're hoping that the, the judge will decide that it's in the public interest. If they don't, I notice you're advertising if anybody didn't have any assets and fancied taking the court forward just in case they did ask for a massive amount of costs against somebody. So if there's anybody listening to this who's got fuck all, who doesn't mind their, <laughs> their, their arse sued by Uber, you'd like them to get in contact. Was that essentially it, Julian? That was essentially it, and funnily enough, there was someone <laughs> uh, who got in touch, and uh, he has now registered for VAT. Uh, on the 1st of November, he'll take an Uber. And if um, the court objects to me as a claimant, then um, he has agreed to put his name forward. 
Um, you know, it's bananas. We have HMRC, it has tens and tens of thousands of staff. Um, we have the Electoral Commission, who I'm also suing, um, with hundreds of staff. We have DEXU and Treasury, um, who I'm also suing, <laughs> with, with thousands of staff, and none of them are doing their bloody jobs. Um, and, and this is how it is um, that our um, democracy is, is failing, because people look at those um, in whom they have um, put their trust, in, for whom they pay their taxes... Um, who they can reasonably expect to, to act in the general public interest. And they say of all of these enormously expensive organisations, why are you not doing the right thing? They can see with their eyes, people are not stupid, they can see with their eyes that these organisations are not doing what they should be doing and they are very, very angry. And I feel their anger, I feel it. Um, I think they are right to be angry. And so, you know, in my small way, because the Good Law Project is um, me um, and... And, and no one else. Um, in, you know, in my small way, I'm trying to give a voice um, to these concerns, which I think are incredibly important. They have to be heard if our democracy is to thrive. What is the HMRC's reason for not pursuing that? From it? There must be, a, you know, if you or I don't pay our taxes, a letter's going to come through the letterbox and we're going to be asked why we haven't, you know, and, and make arrangements to pay what is that? Why is that not an automatic thing? What is the, for, with the most cynical reason, why has well, the HMRC not asked for that from either? Uh, my guess, and it's only a guess, is that HMRC has been told by a minister that it is in the United, United Kingdom's interests for us as a country to provide a, a friendly tax environment for big US tech companies. That's the way it would have been put to HMRC. You don't get to be a senior civil servant without hearing those um, soft messages from ministers. Um, and, and that's what they will have done. But you can phrase it nicely like that, but what in actuality it is, is um, a government minister um, saying to HMRC, do not apply the law to claim... £200 million in a year, over a billion pounds um, in all so far um, in tax from Uber. And, and that is, that's, that's wrong. And if you perform that kind of narrow economic calculus, maybe it's better if Uber are here and we get a good reputation for being a friendly country for tech companies and there are lots of people who can now work. Um, and so that makes it worthwhile us not claiming that 200 million quid in in VAT, if that's your narrow political calculus, what you miss is that everyone in the country looks at that with disgust and despair and, um, and votes against it um, in ways that are incredibly self-destructive, like Brexit. And the bigger um, calculus is far, far more damaging. I've been making this point for years. I've been making this point for many years, even before, for, before Brexit, that, that we need to get better at this. We need to start caring about the things that we should care about. Well, you're something of an inspiration to me, Jolly, and in the sense that uh, I did law at university. Now, the, the reason I did law at university is I had wanted to do maths, English, and uh, economics for A-levels, but my state school, they couldn't quite timetable that, so they suggested there was heresy trying to do arts and sciences, so they said, <laughs> why, do, why don't you do double maths, physics, chemistry? Now, it turns out I hated double maths, physics, chemistry, so when it came to university, I said, can I do English? They said, well, you can't do English, you haven't done it for A-level. They said, but you can do law, they said, because it's somewhere between an art and a science. And obviously it wasn't. It was somewhere in between tedious and interminable. <laughs> But Just imagine, if you had done that English degree, you'd know what nominative determinants are. I would do, I would do. But law never taught me that, but somehow. But yes, so, so in that sense, you, you, you know, you're an inspiration. I can now see somebody doing something useful with law. But this cost is a problem, isn't it? In terms of, like, you know, you, yourself and Jonathan, the case that you took to Dublin, you, in the end it was all going to cost too much. Top barristers, £500 an hour. You know, even you are having to get your, for the cases you're doing, some of the QCs you're having to get to work at reduced rates. And obviously, from us, it's nice to know that there are mates' rates available... You never know when you may need a, a good tax lawyer, do you? I, mean, I don't know if Jimmy Carr's been in touch at all recently. But it, it is a costly ex expense. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend um, that I don't live a very comfortable life. I'm uh, very lucky. I work uh, in a profession that pays incredibly well. 
And so um, I work, I guess, about a day of paid work a week. The other four days um, I'm able to spend doing stuff that engages me. And that's something that I can do because at the bar you're self-employed. And so um, the only person who um, bears the consequences of the choices you make about how you spend your time um, is yourself. And for me... Um, it's an incredibly satisfying balance to be able to pursue without any accountability at all the social issues I care but, about, but isn't whilst it, at the same time um, living a... It's a, a tragedy, life. then, that the Good Law Project is only you and every other single barrister could manage on one day a week, but he's earning five the greedy bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are lots... There's, there's a I, there's of... no need to defend you. It's OK. It's, it's no need. <laughs> So, Angela, you, you are hosting Newsjet. All of this topical stuff is all yes. sort of grist to your mill, as it were. Absolutely. Newsjet, for those people who don't know, is something that people can send in sketches. Send, yeah. It's for the general public to it's participate. It's an open submission. So it's on Radio 4 Extra, and it's open submissions. So if you've ever listened to radio comedy and gone, I could write better than that, well, then put your money where your mouth is and do it. Because Newsjet is... Uh, people can send in their sketches and one-liners. We actually had a brilliant sketch this series uh, where you and Caroline featured as conjoined twins. It's good fun. <laughs> Have you ever been... T- Tempted to do a bit of a Ronnie Barker and uh, send, send in some stuff, pretending that's unsolicited, that's actually yours, you know. I've been tempted, but it's really good, the stuff they send in. It's just, oh, I don't feel I can do as well as that. That's, it's, but it's, um, so I, it's, it opens with a monologue. So I write the monologue at the beginning, which is just a sort of catch-up on that week's news. And then um, we do, yeah, just sketches that, that anyone can send in. And this week, uh, or, or maybe last week as it, as it will be, you, you were very much, your monologue was very much about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And you, one of the things that was particularly getting your ire was blokes who were having a go at Harvey Weinstein saying because they were fathers of a daughter. Speaking and, as a father. It just winds me up because there's, there's this thing that being a parent, I think... Uh, gives you a right to compassion that the rest of us don't have. And I think it's bullshit. I think some compassionate people have children, some don't. Some not very compassionate people have children. Piers Morgan has children. Right? That <laughs> should be the end of that argument, really, right there. Um, you know, and, and the speaking as a father thing, I understood it's difficult because it came from a good place for most people. I think Matt Damon said it. Lots of Hollywood stars came out, you know, and, and they wanted to do the right thing by the women in Hollywood when all these allegations were coming out. And for me, the right thing to do as a straight white man in Hollywood right now is to shut the fuck up and listen to what's being said. Because people are trying to tell you that they're not asking you to fix it. They're not asking you to come forward and explain it to us. We've lived... Like, every woman I know has a story. Every single one. And when I read articles that say people are shocked at the amount of sexual harassment... No, people aren't shocked. Men are shocked. We're not shocked. Women aren't shocked because we've all got the stories. We all know. There's too many for all of us to count, whoever you are, whatever, whether you're in the public eye or not. We've all got stories. And the, and the fact that you have to wait till you have a daughter to give a shit about 51% of your fellow human beings, I just think isn't good enough. You know, you've got mothers, you've got sisters, you've got friends, you've got lovers, you've got other women in your life that you should care about as much as the ones that you've... But, it, I mean, it is, it, it, you know, Andrea Ledson made the same mistake of thinking that elevated, you know, parents have some elevated status. She said she was going to be a better prime minister because she was a parent. You know, parents doesn't make you better, does it? No. Well, it, I think the argument, the other side of that coin is that, you know, as a parent, I'm not a parent and I don't intend on having children. Now, that doesn't make, it, 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 like I say, some compassionate people have children, some don't. But what being a parent doesn't do is give you, you know, empathy doesn't arrive in amniotic fluid. It's not how it works right and I and I think actually you could argue against that what Andrea Ledson said when it came to Theresa May is well actually if you're a parent you've got the biological imperative that we're all got as human beings that when we have children our imperative is to ensure the survival of that line of that child and their future well actually if you don't have your own children then maybe then you've got more empathy to spread around. I'm not saying that parents don't have empathy for other people, but, you know, Theresa May is but a I, bad I, example um, when it comes to talking about empathy. But, you know, in comparison to Andrea Ledson, you could argue, well, maybe that gives her... Very much so, because I think parents, you know, are, often are worse in, in the sense that they're often more knackered, more grumpy, <laughs> more frustrated, because they have to go to a lot of places they don't want to go to with a car full of little shits. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, often a worse person to judge anything. I mean, I've got a six-year-old. He's a little shit. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, but, I want to make it clear. Like, people think that, A, I hate children. I don't hate children. I just don't trust me to keep one alive. That's a different thing altogether. You know, friends have children. I love my friends' kids, and I take them out. But I love them. The one I hate, rest I love. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I object to is just that somehow that makes me a less compassionate, empathic human being. You know, and it's simply not how it works, I don't think. And, you know, some people can't have children. You're going to tell them they don't care about other human beings? No, of course not. You know, and just those decisions we make are different. And you, um, you've had your own series on Radio 4 as well as News Jack. Yeah. Um, very much enjoyed it. Congratulations Thank on you. that. Series um, 2 coming out next year. Lovely, great. Well, it, it, it's called You Can't Take It With You for those people who haven't. It was basically, um, you know, it was a tribute to your dad in, in many ways. Your, yeah, Your yeah. dad, who was a, a sex shop manager. He was. A naturist. Yeah. Enjoyed caravanning and pranks. Yeah. He's <laughs> quite a character, I think well, it's I was going to say, I mean, if you're a sex shop manager and a naturist, you can get up some pretty good pranks, yeah. I should imagine. <laughs> But a bit of a risk to go caravanning with would be, would be my assessment. He also ran a B&B, and I don't like to think what happened in that B&B. <laughs> um, yeah, so he was quite a rich seaman. So my, my dad passed away in 2008, and really that was the catalyst to me starting to do stand-up. So he never actually got to see me as a comedian. I, I wasn't, you know, had no thoughts of being a comedian at that point. And um, so when I did my first Edinburgh show, it's very important because he, he was a big comedy fan and a, a you know, big, larger-than-life character. It's very important that he was part of the show. And his, and his philosophy in life was you can't take it with you. He lived his life. He, he died at 60. He was a type 1 diabetic with heart problems. And, but he, right up to that final day, he was out partying and he went with a bang, you know, and, um, uh, and with no money. And um, <laughs> can't take it with you. <laughs> and you Great can't philosophy. give it to your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing that started the show, I, I realised that when he died, we, we went a little bit mad sort of putting things in his coffin on the last day to, for him to take with him, little keeps it, like photographs. And, uh, so much, at one point I thought we were going to have to take him out, you know, it was just like we are filling up. And I thought it's amazing how all these things we've chosen sort of represent the different parts of his life. So I did a show about, I wonder what, by asking my friends and family what items they would choose you know, if I died, what I would end up taking with me on my final journey. Because we don't get a say in that, you know, that's other people get to decide what represents you in your final journey. And I thought that was quite an interesting sort of thing to explore. So the show's about what, what you would take with you on your final journey and how it relates to the life that you've lived. But it's funny, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan, you're, you're a performer yourself in, in the sense that in your spare time you, uh, you play drums with a blues rock band called The Mustangs. Have you, have you ever been tempted to sort of, you know, combine your two roles do your conference speech for the Greens and then go, and this is me, reveal a huge drum kit behind, start eating a bit of dairy milk or anything like that? I did uh, On the Right stuff, yeah, during the election. They got, they got my kit into the, into the studio and I got to play a little bit. But yeah, I, drums has been my passion. In fact, I wanted to be a musician. And if I hadn't kind of fucked up my A-levels, I probably would have, yeah, ended up being... Um, I, I wouldn't have gone into politics because it kind of took me on a different route and I would have gone down a completely different route. Um, but yeah, I do uh, still play with the same guys I was at school with. Uh, formed the band, this present band, in about 2002. Got a small deal uh, with a label, which has produced our 10th album. So we kind of play around the country, a bit abroad, Amsterdam, which is quite fun. Uh, <laughs> north of Paris. We're, we're pro decriminalisation, if you remember. Love it. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, it was, it's good fun. It gets Great. me kind of something completely different. I'm going to have to stop you there because we're going to have to go to questions because we're run, running out of time. It looks like, uh, probably luckily for this particular audience, that we've only got time for one question, which may, may even be a stretch for this particular audience. Um, but uh, before we go, I'll just tell you who we've got coming up. On, on the next show, uh, it's monthly, uh, on last Monday of the month, we have uh, Clive Lewis, MP. So that could be uh, quite interesting. <laughs> He'll be here. And we've also got uh, Dominic Holland, and we've also got the uh, director of Unpackaged, Catherine Conway, will be here. That's November the 27th. And then for our Christmas show, December the 18th, we've got Richard Herring, we've got Lucy Powell, MP, and we've got Michael Deacon, the Telegraph columnist. Anybody listening onto the podcast, um, feel free to get in contact about anything, anyparsons.co.uk. Okay, who's got a question for one of our panel? Anybody got a question? I think we should celebrate the Trump indictments today. So what are your thoughts on the charges that have been laid and where it might lead to? Jonathan, do you want to have uh, have yeah. first shot and we'll go around the panel? I'm going to have words in my press office because they haven't told me about this. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not even going to pontificate on that one. Well, I, I know a good lawyer. He's on your left-hand side. Um, Jolly, what would you like to say? 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because we all want the kind of certainty of the resolution that the law can provide. But fundamentally, these questions have to be resolved in the political dimension. I mean, even I, I spend all my time litigating these questions. Even I can see that that kind of stuff isn't the answer. We actually have to be out there winning the argument. So it'll be great fun. I'll enjoy every minute of it. I don't think it will deliver profound change. It's going to be a right saga. We're, we're, up, we're up all night. You're getting no so work done tomorrow morning, are you, Jonathan? Right now. <laughs> My feeling about Trump, of course, is that he's supposed to be coming over here, isn't he? And they're saying now that it won't be a state visit because they don't want the protests. You know, so they're saying they may downgrade it. If he does come, I think they've probably underestimated the British public's ability to organise a protest at short notice, would be, <laughs> would be my guess. Yeah. Let's have this one as well. What is the solution to the Brexit issue that answers the dissatisfaction? Time machine. (laughs) (laughs) Time time machine from Angela. We're going to go for one-sentence answers. What is the solution of Brexit? Jolyon. People like me need to listen. We need to listen. People need to feel heard, and unless they feel heard, um, this will not end in a good place. Being heard doesn't necessarily mean that Brexit happens, but people do need to feel heard, and I think they're entitled to feel heard. And that's a brilliant one-sentence answer from a lawyer. (laughs) And, and you, Jonathan? I think it's giving people the opportunity to uh, go in a different direction and not hemming them into a corner. The more people see what Brexit means, the less they like it. That's clear. But unless people have a route to change their mind, a reason to change their mind, we aren't going to win this. So in terms of if you, if you are listening on the podcast, please uh, feel free to subscribe. That would be fantastic. It's one click. Every Slacktivist should subscribe because it saves them having to click again at the future. <laughs> feel, feel free if you're feeling uber keen to uh, rate and review as well. And also, please, if anybody uh, wants to spread the word, Angela was uh, spreading the word on Twitter today about the Slacktivist Action Group. It was very lovely. Couldn't spell the word Slacktivist. And nothing could be more. <laughs> Nothing could be more slacktivist than not being asked about how to spell it. And we also encourage people to get involved with one thing during the month. So if you want to join the Green Party, Green Party website. If you want to write for Newsjack, go to the BBC Writing Room. And if you want to have your arse sued by Uber with no, nothing going on, check out the Good Law Project and also check out these various crowdfunding things for Brexit impact assessments not always easy to say but slightly easier than nominative determinism <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much to, to everybody today I mean we all know anything is possible so uh, Amber Rudd has an, a majority of 346 doesn't she and we have Boris Johnson only a majority of 5,000 at the moment it would be quite incredible if he, if he does finally become the leader of the Conservative Party and then obviously holds an election and loses his seat. We know, if nothing else, don't we, Michael Portillo would be punching the air. (laughs) Nobody will be talking about that Portillo moment anymore. I can get off these sodding trains. So, as I say, thank you to our free guests. Please give it up for Jonathan Bartley, Jolian Morm, Angela Barnes. Good luck. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.